You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year, from artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors, and in this episode, YouTube stars. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer, and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. This episode, I'm talking to Jackie M, a TV presenter, writer, and popular YouTube chef. With a passion for Asian cooking, she began experimenting with recipes and running stalls at weekend markets. Then she made the life-changing decision to ditch her IT career and follow full-time in the footsteps of her street food vendor parents. She hasn't looked back, and now her following has grown to over 1.9 million people worldwide. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Now, Jackie M, now, why are you called Jackie M? (laughs) (laughs) Because back in the day, uh, there was a Mr. M, right? Nowadays, I just tell people, look, M stands for Malaysia. How about that? It's easy to remember. So you're well known for Malaysian cuisine, which is one of my favorite cuisines. I absolutely love it. I think we could probably do an entire episode just on the food, but we won't. Um, uh, How did you, what do you do currently? Because you're you're quite uniquely positioned in what you do. What do you do currently in terms of spreading the word about Malaysian cuisine? Sure. Okay. So what I've done over the last uh, 20 years plus is essentially um, build a business around Malaysian food uh, in the early days. It, you know, it was basically um, in the form of actual food production, whether at markets and at restaurants uh, and running my own restaurant and that sort of stuff. But nowadays, I've basically, um, you know, I reinvented is a little bit of a weird way of expressing it. But because of my current situation, uh, I'm still passionate about promoting Malaysian food, but I do it in, through like uh, the online medium, essentially. So I do a lot of live broadcasts. I show people how to cook Malaysian food because I'm really, I, I think it's really important because my parents come from a, a street food background back in Malaysia. This is a little bit before my time, uh, but in the early days, my parents used to be hawkers uh, in our little hometown in Seremban. And what I feel is fundamentally lacking, well, certainly back when I first started out anyway, was uh, the kind of like the handing, you know, the passing on of the baton, you know, in terms of recipes and and and, and cooking uh, techniques and all that sort of stuff. So I kind of took it on myself to learn as much as I could about Malaysian cooking and recipes and all that. So nowadays, I basically am kind of like doing a brain dump through my <laughs> website, through my videos and my live broadcasts, my cooking demonstrations, showing people how to um, cook all these lovely food that they grew up loving in Malaysia, essentially, in a Mm. nutshell. So when you look at your online presence and social media, you have millions of followers, not just in Australia, but from around the world. What do your parents think, you know, (laughs) of this? (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, look, um, my, my dad was always very su- supportive. I, my mom actually passed away when I was six years old. Uh, my mm. stepmom has always been a little bit ambivalent. Um, you know, typical Asian um, parenting, they think like you're wasting your education because I did go to <laughs> university. I did have a real job at some point <laughs> um, when I first, um, you know, uh, in the early days, uh, I was an IT consultant. Um, so, uh, but my dad was always uh, very supportive. So he was always the one who kind of um, was would ask me how my business was doing and he would like his eyes would light up when I told him about a new dish I was adding to the menu and that sort of stuff so I think in some ways you know Asians are not generally that expressive right but I think he was always very very supportive and I really really appreciated that. What does Lunar New Year mean to you? You know what? Um, it it brings back a lot of nostalgic memories of uh, the celebration of Lunar New Year back in Malaysia. Uh, I remember in the early days, you know, uh, before the, you know, I'm I'm old enough to talk about this. You know, before we had department stores and stuff like that, my mom would take us to the tailors to get um, three sets of brand new clothing made up in preparation for New Year, and then you know. It, because you know the Chinese believe in like a new beginning right there's family there's new beginnings there's like uh, red packets there's like uh, fireworks and you know back back when uh, you know firecrackers hadn't been banned yet right Um, and huge banquets and all that sort of stuff so very very auspicious and I that's one thing that I really miss about like growing up in Malaysia really uh the concept of open houses which you don't really have here in Australia I don't know if you're that familiar with that uh, yes but yeah. <laughs> take your oranges, swap yeah, your oranges that's over, right, that's get right. red Everything packets. symbolizes yeah. something, you know. Even nowadays when I see people post on Facebook about celebrating Ch- uh, Lunar New Year, uh, whether here in Australia or even in Malaysia, I think, you know, they're just kind of like, it, it seems almost like they're just going through the motions. They think, come on, guys, you don't eat satay and, 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 and that sort of stuff at New Year's. You eat traditional Chinese dishes. They all, each dish symbolizes something, you know, whether it's prosperity or... Um, um, you know, long life and all that sort of stuff is all very, very symbolic. And I think I've, we've lost a little bit of that, you know, you know, through the passing of time and I guess, you know, the transference of like, you know, from one country to the next as well. Sure. Speaking of signature dishes, now, I, as I said, I love Malaysian food, Malaysian and Singaporean food. What is your signature dish? Look, it's changed over the years. Currently, I guess I would say cha kui tiao, which is a, mm. basically a stir-fried fresh rice noodle dish. A lot of people to this day still mistake it for pad thai, um, yes. and <laughs> which is why, like, I still kind of like think like my job is nowhere near nearly done, right? Because <laughs> I feel like I it's I've taken it on myself to educate the Australian public about Malaysian food and Southeast Asian food um, to a greater, to, you know, to a broader extent as well. Just kind of like to pass the differences between Thai and Malaysian and Indian and um, Indonesian and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's currently cha kui tiao, but back in the day, you know, I actually started out as a satay specialist um, oh. going back way back in my 20s. So, yeah. And so with uh, chakwetia what and pad thai they are often confused what would you say is the key differences Look, um, the the flavors are very different. You, it is I can understand why people would get them confused. Because and also to pass it a little bit more as well, I come from the southern part of Malaysia where our chakwetia is a little bit more similar to the Singaporean version. We use like a broad 
cup noodles, similar to what you get like in a part CU, if you know what I mean. So if you want it to be pedantic, you, you know, if you want it to kind of like draw references from Thai cuisine, which I think a lot of Australians are more familiar with, uh, part CU is probably a closer comparison to my char kway teow as opposed to part Thai. But up north in the island of Penang, they're famous for their version of char kway teow, which they call Penang char kway teow. They do use a skinny kind of a translucent rice noodle that looks very similar to part Thai noodles. Um, but part Thai, uh, as with a lot of Thai uh, dishes, uh, has a stronger dominant uh, sweet and sour flavor through it. Mm. We don't have that. Malaysian dishes by and large tend to be more savory um so i guess in a nutshell those are probably the main differences do you think it's essential to put the egg in the um clam is it clam that's uh yeah we call them blood cockles look cockles um, that's right (laughs) look um you know it's that that's one of those raging debates right like (laughs) Counts as authentic Raging and all that. <laughs> Look, you know, I've been in Australia long enough. Like when I came to Australia back in the eighties, there were a lot of ingredients that weren't available here, right? Yeah. So you had to adapt. You had to kind of like not just adapt in terms of your recipe, but also adapt to local, like you know, uh, uh, taste buds, right? So uh, my, I can't claim that my food is what that Hawken over in Penang would. Uh, produce because there's so many different iterations first of all even within Malaysia itself but also just through the passage of time through um, you know food uh, recipes evolving and all that sort of stuff but look you know I can't get a hold of good blood cockles here in mm. Sydney None, not that I can come across anyway so I mean if you wanted to kind of replicate the flavor a little bit I would suggest using like fresh oysters but you, we all know how, how expensive fresh oysters can get right yeah. um, and I, look, in all honesty I don't know if that many Australians are going to be that fixated on wanting blood cockles in their childhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Um, <laughs> so so you um you came here in the eighties, you said. So you're Chinese born in Malaysia. Your mm-hmm. dad is also Chinese born in Malaysia, but mm-hmm. he uh, met your mother in Malaysia who mm-hmm. migrated from China with her family right. at a young age. That's right. So you grew up essentially in Malaysia but came mm-hmm. here um, how old were you when you came here and why? Okay, I came here when I was 17 and a half. This was back in 1984. And I came, look, in all honesty, uh, metaphorically speaking, uh, kicking and screaming, right? I know a lot of Malaysians, there were a lot of political uncertainty back in the day. And a lot of people thought they'd get better opportunities overseas. So they were sending their kids overseas to study. Uh, in my case, my parents came on a family reunion visa because I come from a big family and my older brothers and sisters were already in Australia and settled in after having done their uh, tertiary education here, right? Because um, my family, for what, you know, whatever else you say about us, they're fa- fairly academic sort of thing. So my sister got a scholarship to come here to study uh, way back, like in the early 70s, I guess it would have been. Um, ended up settling here then like you know 
basically it seemed like every couple of years we were sending more and more of our older siblings overseas to study and we were basically the last holdouts right so when my parents came over I automatically because I was still under 18 just barely under 18 I automatically was included into their um, uh, visa so uh, what happened was that like you know as a rebellious teenager I had a boyfriend back in Malaysia I really didn't want to come and I came at a really I guess um, a tricky time in Australian history at uh, at a time where there was a lot of, um, I guess, uh, refugee intake from Indochina. So I was even actually warned before we even uh, boarded the plane by my sister over here to say, look, just, you know, just want to give you a heads up that there's a lot of like um, anti-Asian sentiment here. And, you know, when you land at the airport, you might actually be interviewed by Australian reporters asking you how you felt about arriving in a hostile country, right? And so I really kind of like, I guess, yeah, I know. I guess I I stepped on the wrong foot when I came to Australia. So it took me quite a few years to actually finally acknowledge that I I was grateful to be in Australia, right? So... But did yeah. you experience any of that, what your assistant warned you about? <laughs> a big time because uh, my parents, because they were fairly elderly uh, we and also they didn't have a lot of assets, we ended up settling in the hotbed of like a, a refugee intake. We were we lived, we ended up settling quite close to Cabramatta, right? And I went to school at Fair, uh, in Fairfield West where uh, I guess, you know, I, I think the, the people just went that exposed to Southeast Asian culture at the time, right? So what happened on my first day at school, I had a uh, this Australian girl take me around to visit all the department heads, and she and I were just chatting away. She was pretty friendly. We finally uh, approached the English department, and the English department head, said to me, uh, Jackie, uh, do you speak any English? And being like, uh, I guess, being a middle child and being Asian and all that, I wasn't about to toot my own horn too much. I just said, yes. Um, the Australian girl who was with me, Danielle, she said, oh, Mr. Drury, she speaks beautiful English. I've been talking to her all morning. And he said, okay, no worries. And then he assigned me an English class. And when she took me there, it turned out he put me in a class uh, of um, basically new arrivals, refugees, okay, and they did not speak one word of English, and they were really embarrassed about the mix-up, and uh, so they sent me back to Mr. Drury, who said, oh, look, it looks like we made a mistake, so we're going to put you in another class, so what he did was basically put me in the lowest possible English class in that school, and that really stuck with me. I was really, really, (laughs) I was really sore about it because English was my favorite subject back in Malaysia, you know. Um, But that kind of carried through um, in a lot of my experience arriving in Australia. I know, like, you know what, uh, women, when they reach a certain age, you know, you hear nowadays, because I'm at that age now, you hear like women saying, oh, you reach a certain age where you become invisible to, <laughs> to, to, to men, right? Sort of thing. I felt that when I arrived in Australia at 17 years of age. Because back in the, uh, in Malaysia, I felt like I had like my network of friends. We were all peers. We went out with people that we saw to be our equals. When I arrived in Australia, nobody, uh, you know, paid me any attention except men who were twice my age or three times my age and looking for a male or the bride. So I always had them <laughs> hanging over me. So it was, I, I guess, you know, like I said, it was just a really messed up 
time for me to be coming into a new country and trying to settle in. So like I said, I was very, very sore about it. Yeah, right. And so you were, I mean, you, you spoke English at home. Is this correct that you spoke English at home? You were educated in English. When you refer to the English subject, that was actually English literature, I'm assuming, not the, the language of English. So you were, and, and you spoke multiple languages as well. Yeah, look, we, <laughs> you know, in Malaysia, we call it Roger. Roger is kind of like a mishmash of everything. So, mm-hmm. look, to be fair in Malaysia, and you see that if you watch enough of uh, Malaysian interviews of Malaysian politicians, they do that too. Um, they'll throw in a few English words, a few Malay words, maybe some Chinese um, mm. uh, idioms here and there sort of thing. We're so used to kind of like just throwing everything in together, right? So right. It, I did have to learn to actually just use English proper. Uh, but, yeah, back in Malaysia, we, we studied both English grammar, et cetera, and all that, and also we did English literature as well. Um, but we studied English uh, as a second language, Malay as a first language, and I grew up being a native Chinese. I spoke a couple of Chinese dialects as well. So I came over to Australia with a handful of languages in the bag. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. All right, so um, you, you then went on to university. What did you end up deciding to study? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I actually look. Uh, I I went to university. I went to Sydney University, and then I dropped out after the uh, a few months, and then I took oh. a year off, and then I went back. Right, but the first time I went in, I took my brother's advice, being the good Chinese, um, uh, you know, uh, person that I was. He said, "Look, Chinese would be good in like economics, so do economics, right? <laughs> and also do Indonesian because, like, you Indonesian is essentially Malay, yes. um, and you would basically be competing against other Aussies who wanted to who picked up Indonesian because they wanted to go to Bali for a holiday. So I took his advice, and I realized that it, economics just did not." jive with me so I quit university and I went waitressing for a year um, at the Queen Victoria building which was at the time just newly opened and then I went back a year later and I thought this time around I'm just going to do what I really wanted to do which was just languages so I did a bunch of languages and um, you know to the horror of like uh, my uh, academic advisors I basically did uh, French, German, Spanish, Indonesian and Japanese Um, I ended up dropping Japanese at some point because I realized on the other side of the fence that I was competing against st- Chinese students from China who had a leg up because they already knew, uh, you know, kanji, right? Mm. Uh, whereas I was learning it from scratch. So even though it, uh, I spoke Chinese, I did not. And to this day, I don't really read or write Chinese. Sort of thing. I know like, you know, well, I know many words and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay, I dropped Japanese, but I subsequently did pick it up after university again sort of thing at the at work because I worked for a Japanese company for a while which and they offered like a private tutoring in Japanese and so right why this fascination with languages that is a a ridiculous number of languages so not only do you speak well English Hakka Cantonese Mm-hmm. Uh, Indonesian, what was it, French, uh, um, Spanish? Malay, yeah, yeah, French, Spanish, Indonesian. I, I majored in German, actually. Oh, um, my God. <laughs> well, partly because, like, I'm, 
I've always, I don't know, it's, I think it's just in my DNA to be a little bit rebellious. When people tell me I shouldn't do something, I feel like I, I, I'm inclined to do it. But I, someone at some point told me, look, uh, Chinese people aren't really cut out to speak French because our <laughs> tongues are just not cut out for it. And I'll show you sort of things. So I picked up French. I wasn't particularly like, you know, enamored with the language per se, but I did come away with a high distinction the first year. So I thought, oh, that, yeah. there you go. I showed him sort of things. So I did it for another year. Um, German, because I figured, look, I, I met, I think I met some German travelers in that gap year. <laughs> that sort of thing. I thought, oh, well, you know, they seem like cool people. Um, and, <laughs> and so I did it. So it was all very random. And Spanish over Italian. It was back in the day at Sydney University back in the day had an Italian department. They didn't have a Spanish department. But the year I went back, they had just started to basically um, accept um, Spanish, although they're lecturers were brought in from UNSW sort of thing so I thought well you know Spanish is more broadly used uh, than Italian so let's do Spanish sort of thing oh so it's all very random I, oh, oh. I can't claim to actually be able to speak <laughs> this language as well by any stretch of the imagination but it was just kind of like to prove a point to some extent I guess yeah and, uh, right yeah, I wonder who in the world told you that that Chinese people can't speak French. Uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was actually a relative who had actually spent some time in the French part of Canada. Uh, he studied there and he could never pick up French. And he said, look, Jackie, don't even bother. Chinese tongue's not cut out to speak French. <laughs> That's insane. I love how there's a scene, I don't know if you've seen Crazy Rich Asians, but there's a scene where the uh, mother is reading a bedtime story to her, her child and um, she's reading Le Petit Prince, um, you know, by Antoine de saint oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. she's reading it in French. Oh, and, right. and, you know, I love how the movie hasn't uh, made out that she's reading some, you know, Ch Asian myth or legend uh, or something yeah, yeah, to the yeah, kids' yeah. bed because it, it would be perfectly normal, actually, in exactly. this day and age to be reading um, that in French to your kid. Exactly, um, yeah. So... Just fast forward now to um, to through through your career and tell me the dot points of the main milestones of where you, you've been up, up until today. Sure. Okay. So um, I came out of university and I had a regular uh, office job for a couple of years and then I fell into IT, right? So I without any formal training in IT, I fell into it because I got a job working in the IT department as an admin assistant at Rothschilds. Um, and through that, I managed to pick up a lot of IT skills. And within three months of doing that, I thought, okay, I'm good enough now to go contracting. This is again, like back when IT was just starting to kind of like uh, come to the fore, IT contracting. Um, and I thought, oh, let's seize the moment. And I went contracting as an IT person and subsequently I thought look let's go to England because back in the day like I said I, I was still in that weird space where I was a little bit like uh, in two minds about what I was doing here in Australia uh, by that stage I was married and I had a kid and my husband was British so I thought look why not go over to England and start all over again so we went to England and right before that I basically actually got myself certified as a Microsoft certified systems engineer and uh, and all that kind of stuff right so went to England and worked there for a couple of years and really my experience in Europe made me appreciate Australia a lot more. Really? Right? So, in what sense? Well, look, it's, it's, uh, yeah. 
and in a lot of ways, uh, the bureaucracy, the weather, the uh, the lack of appreciation for food. Uh, you know, this is back in like the late 90s. I felt like they just didn't appreciate food. When I went out with my English friends, they were all about going to pubs and that sort of stuff. And I didn't drink, right? So I felt really left out. And when, you know, even when they had celebrations for colleagues' birthdays and farewells and whatever, it would be like, let's go to this pub. And then when we're done with that pub, let's go to the other pub and then to another one. And and you'll go, what about food? And they'll go, oh, we'll figure out, you know, we'll pick out something on the way. I'm saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. You know, food is life. You know, if you grew up in Malaysia like I did, food is the center of like everything. So a lot of things just didn't jive with me. And in the end, after two years, I thought, enough, let's go back to Australia and start all over again. And that's when I decided to, when I came back, I came back to Australia at the, in 2001, which is the same time the, I don't know if you are old enough to remember the Y2K panic, right? So oh, there yes, were a lot yes. of lucrative IT contracts happening leading up to two, the year 2000. But I came back in 2001 after the Y2K panic had dissipated and contracts just basically dried up. Um, mm. I was offered a full-time position in IT, but that would basically require me to basically halve my, uh, you know, mm. my, 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 my rate, my, what I could command. And I thought, no, this would be a good time for me to actually explore, uh, taking my, you know, picking up my parents' mantle. My parents were hawkers back in the day in Malaysia. Right. And I thought this would be a good opportunity for me to actually kind of like, um, start anew and get into the whole food thing and try and like preserve a lot of these recipes. This is before the days of like food blogs and all that sort of stuff. So you can't just quickly Google how to make chakwitiao or satay or laksa and all that. And a lot of the one major misconception among I think Westerners about us Malaysians, at least anyway, is that we are all good cooks, but yeah. that nothing could be further from the truth. We are so yeah. spoiled growing up in Malaysia where you can pay like, you know, 20 cents for a stick of sade that you never bother yeah. to learn how to make it so I had to learn all that and I figured also uh, because my parents were uh, hawkers in the early days yes. and subsequently gave it up and we actually had a proper shop where we sold different things all the recipes went away when they gave up that mm. uh, aspect of their life and that's basically a very uh, familiar story within the hawker culture, the street food culture in Malaysia and Southeast Asia. Hawkers tend to hold on to their recipes, you know, and refuse to kind of like dissipate them or share them and that sort of yes, stuff. And then so once true. they retired and their the younger generations didn't want to do the hawker thing, uh, people forget how to make that. So I thought, look, you know, this would be a good opportunity for me to explore how to flip roti chanai, how to make Hainanese chicken rice, how to make laksa and satay and popia skin and all those really kind of, I guess, fringy stuff, um, you know, that required a lot of skill and technique. Um, so I did it by trial and error and subsequently, I started selling food at farmers markets around Sydney and then I built up enough leverage to open a restaurant and, yeah, and then subsequently um, my life took another turn when my son Noah came along and he was uh, diagnosed as being severely disabled and in fact he, uh, you know um, essentially 
his uh, his life was considered not viable sort of thing. So um, right in the middle of uh, my restaurant, running a restaurant and my marriage having my second marriage having broken up by that stage, I was uh, pregnant with Noah and trying to figure out what to do from, uh, you know, once he came along and that sort of stuff. I did not expect that he would be spending seven plus months in the ICU when he first came out. But that was what happened. And then um, but other opportunities come along. Right. Sort of thing. So when I came out, uh, literally when uh, I was still in hospital, I just had a, an emergency cesarean delivering Noah. Um, I got a, a Google Australia contacted me. Mm-hmm online and they said look you know this is going back seven years ago Noah's now six years old uh, Google Australia contacted me and say hey Jackie M uh, we noticed you're fairly active on social media and we've just launched this new basically tool called Google Hangouts on Air this is an early iteration of live streaming video right uh, nowadays practically every social media platform has its own live streaming video live streaming but Google came up with the idea all the way back like you know nearly seven years ago now, six and a half years ago. Um, So they said, look, we think that you could actually combine your cooking um, with live streaming and actually show people how to cook. And I thought, and look, like I said, things were looking really dying in hospital at the time. I was told my my son, um, you know, was probably going to die and that sort of stuff. So I had had to make a decision whether to say, look, uh, no thanks, I'll pass, or just to say, look, okay, let's look into this. And I said, look, let's look into this, right? Because of my technical background, I wasn't intimidated by the technology uh, behind it. And it was a lot more complicated back in those days. And we didn't have the, uh, you know, uh, we didn't have the heart, the right hardware, the right bandwidth and all that st- sort of stuff to do live streaming that easily sort of thing. So a lot of regular chefs and all that sort of stuff were kind of scared off by the technology. I wasn't. So I went with that. And subsequently, as it turned out, things worked out really well because essentially live streaming became my lifeblood uh, as far as propagating uh, my passion for Malaysian food because I had to give up my restaurant once Noah came out of hospital. But uh, there's a lot of other stuff in between. But essentially, live streaming has carried me onwards ever since then. That's incredible. So Google's tap on the shoulder came just at the right time for you. Absolutely. Right. You wouldn't have thought it. You would think, oh, this is the worst time ever. Like, how could I do this? You know, uh, my son's in the ICU and that sort of stuff. But as it turned out, yeah, it worked out really well. And also from live streaming and, you know, there's a little bit of a pro tip, right, to people trying to break into the industry and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Live streaming allowed me to repurpose a lot of these videos also because Google owns YouTube. My live stream videos, automatically got uploaded onto YouTube and then TV producers came calling they said hey we saw you on uh, YouTube and uh, we need a Malaysian chef to cook on uh, everyday gourmet or whatever else uh, TV show sort of thing and that's how I ended up getting all these uh, TV gigs essentially so so, yeah one thing led to another so that's basically allowed me to sustain my uh, my presence you know. That's brilliant. So um, for people who may not understand how you, I mean, obviously with the live streaming and the online presence, that is incredible exposure, but some people are probably wondering, well, how does Jackie monetize that? So can <laughs> you maybe just touch on that? Sure. Okay. Look, I'll be lying to, if I said that, like I'm, I'm raking in it. I'm not. Okay. But uh, the fact of the matter is I do a little bit of everything. I still produce food on a very small scale 
sale. So I do still um, run one market store a week, uh, about 30, 40 weeks or a year to kind of like help pay the bills. And all I do is just sell charcoal out there. there. Right? where is so that? that? We must that's go. At, <laughs> <laughs> that's over at Concord Hospital, uh, just on the grounds of Concord Hospital. It's a little bit disrupted because they've got uh, some construction work happening over there at the moment. But yeah, essentially, I, sell, I, I just do a lunchtime gig there once a week, uh, about 30 or 40 weeks a year. Um, the rest of the time, I monetize through uh, collaborating with brands. So a brand might say, look, you know, we'd love to work with you to help pr promote our products. We'll uh, send you all these kitchen appliances or I'm a Lenovo ambassador. Lenovo sends me uh, laptops to enable me to do my live streaming. I've had Google back in the day when they were still pushing hard with Google Hangouts on air, Google managed to basically pull some strings, send me overseas. Um, and nowadays I hustle essentially like if i want to go overseas i might contact uh, tourism malaysia and other uh, bodies who might have uh, who might see some re reciprocal benefit in getting someone like me uh, to essentially help promote malaysian travel and malaysian food um so I, I i collaborate with hotels and all that sort of stuff but i am working on another project where i will in fact directly monetize on this whole uh cooking thing a digital cooking thing all right so yep. keep your eyes peeled for what's happening <laughs> next very very exciting and of course importantly noah is well he is he's uh like i said he uh, he's classified as severely disabled he was given no chance of survival and he still has a lot of uh, ongoing medical uh, I wouldn't say issues so much as like they're, they're keeping a very close eye on his development, right? He's got Down syndrome. Um, he's had a couple of open heart surgeries, bowel surgery, and he gets a lot of therapy nowadays. So I am essentially, you know, uh, I, I spent the bulk of my time caring for him. Um, you know, he gets uh, speech therapy, occupational therapy, some physiotherapy, uh, a lot of stuff. So, um, but it's, it, it's, uh, it's been really, really like, uh, I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's just been so incredibly gratifying just seeing, watching someone like him grow and develop and all that. And finally, what are you most looking forward to in the year of the pig? <laughs> I guess I, I've given you a little bit of a hint of this new project yeah. I'm working on. So um, I'm going to be really, really busy uh, creating more uh, cooking content, video content. I'm looking to collaborate with other chefs now. So I want to open this up a little bit and bring people into this. And I'm looking to actually start um, creating culinary tours right to southeast asia chef guided tours to southeast asia and also cooking lessons both online and uh, in real life and all that sort of stuff so i'm very very excited for what's ahead uh, i've got my plate full and keep a yeah keep your eye out for what's happening very very exciting and of course people can keep up with uh, what's going on in your world at jackie that's j-a-c-k-i-e m.com.au. Thank you so Correct. much for your time today, Jackie. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Jackie M. One of the things Jackie mentioned was that when she was little, she used to get three new outfits in readiness for Lunar New Year. This is a tradition during Lunar New Year, and the thinking behind it is to start the new year off with new clothes, certainly wearing new clothes on New Year's Day. 
Lunar New Year in the Northern Hemisphere is also during spring, which is a time for spring cleaning and new beginnings. It was also considered a time to treat yourself and buy yourself a set of new clothes. Of course, a bit of that is a bit lost these days in the world of fast fashion, where we can often buy clothes all the time at the click of a mouse. These days, we don't need an excuse to buy new clothes, but if you did need one, Lunar New Year would give you the perfect excuse to do that. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo, and you can connect with me at ValerieKoo, that's K-H-O-O dot com. To find out more about the City of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. Or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and any of the links I've just mentioned, go to newstories.net.au.